0: Yeah, Thanks, Jason. In case you're thinking we switched uh, worship guys on you and didn't tell you, that's still Jason. He just shaved his beard. You're like, he sounds the same, but he looks different. That's, that's him. I uh, appreciate our worship team. They do an amazing job every week. Uh, good to see you all. Glad you're here. Cool weather. I see, uh, I see fall reflected in the color palettes in the room. I can tell you are ready for fall. It's here, uh, wow! And so, I was just thinking this morning about October for me and the church um, is always a reminder that church is meant to be an extension of family. Uh, for some of you, it's like primary family. For others of you, it's like an extension of primary family because we have so many things going on in October, from you know campus cleanup. That's you know sounds like we have got chores to do uh, to uh, like a chili cook-off coming up, uh, and then we'll actually have a family worship Sunday at the end of the month. We bring in all of our older kids and students with us, and then we'll do parent commitment in that service. And so, yeah, just October is in the air. Um, as you're listening to all these announcements, we'll try to remind you of everything going on week to week. Uh, but this week, uh, ladies, you're up again. It is women's ministry on Wednesday night, six thirty. And I don't like to brag, but um, the guys had a few more uh, in attendance than you last month. I'm just saying, if, if, if competition matters to you, doesn't matter to me. If it matters to you. You've got at least nine more friends to invite, just throwing it out there for you. Um, we no, we actually had a really great turnout last month. If you put men and women together, we had over, over 90 folks show up. And if you compare that to like last year for Wednesday nights where we were having like 20 to 30 show up, that's a big deal. It's like triple the numbers. And so um, this Wednesday night, 6.30, this room, ladies come in, time of worship, time of studying the word, and a time of small group and prayer. And so... Um, Just be sure and be here for that. Guys, you've got a couple weeks still. All right, so um, we are digging in week two in the series, What is the Gospel? And uh, we started this series last week. We're going to spend six weeks on this series. Um, The reason behind, um, if you look at what the church believes and has believed historically uh, since the beginning, the gospel is at the center of everything that we believe theologically. Like, it's the thing that if we don't get it right, we get everything else wrong. And since the church launched in the book of Acts, um, just right after the resurrection, uh, the church has needed help getting back on track with the gospel. And I've thought about that a lot this week. Like, why does every generation struggle to keep the gospel correct and to keep it the way Jesus gave it to us? Like, why are we so prone to wonder? And to believe a different gospel or modify the gospel or add to the gospel. And honestly, I think at the end of the day, it's that the good news sounds too good to be true. In in light of the world we live in, for some of us, it's just hard to believe that there is a being out there that could love me that much. Especially in light of the fact that he knows me this much. And that just seems too good to be true. And then on top of that, his invitation to me is not, it's not a barter. It's not a trade-off. Every other interaction I have seems to have a string attached to it. You need something from me if I want something from you. But the gospel says, hey, come and take what I'm offering and it's yours. And even if you wanted to trade, you don't have anything. And so I think for that reason, we trip over and we stumble over the gospel and we we gravitate away from, we drift towards other versions of the gospel, and we always have. And So we need a series like this. We need time together as a church to allow the word of God to redefine for us or define for the first time for some of us what the true gospel is. And so last week, um, we framed the series with five questions, which we'll be answering now. Starting today going forward the first question is to whom are we accountable you guys remember that question from last week to whom are we accountable? I'm not talking about your local authorities your federal authorities, but who's in charge over them who's in charge in the universe is anybody in charge? The next question is well in what what condition does that find me then? What does that say about me if I am actually accountable in what condition does that accountability accountability find me in? Uh, we're going to go uh, next and we'll talk about in a few weeks. What has God done to address that problem? Uh, we'll spend some time talking about then. Okay, then how do I receive the good news? And then the last question is, what is my part? Now that I know this, now what for me? And so today we're going to be looking at to whom are we accountable? And we're really going to focus on the identity of this one whom we refer to as God. Who is God? And uh, this past weekend, I don't know why, but in our household, for Hallie and I, uh, news headlines were just gripping us a little bit tighter this weekend, like catching us off guard, and like we, we just talked more about things happening in the world around us than normal, from Israel, but even just locally, the, the headlines that were coming across were like, oh my gosh, did you hear this happen? Oh my gosh, did you hear this happen? I don't know about you in that regard, but I wonder what the news headlines would be like in your life, like if we were just like reading the Daily Gazette for you. You know, would it be these great announcements of exciting things going on? Or would there be turmoil? Would there be heartache? Would there be brokenness? Would there be struggle? Like, what would the news headlines be for your life? And then as you think about that, I think that sets us up then to want to ask them, then who is God? Is there anybody actually in charge here over the world and over my life? And so the question we're going to, answer is to whom are we accountable in isaiah chapter 6 if you've got your bibles and want to turn there we'll also have this on the screen we're going to start with the first four verses looking for an answer to this question who is god or to whom are we accountable verse 1 says this in the year that king uzziah died that's just a time stamp I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And so now what Isaiah's is going to do is he's going to walk us into this, this vision experience he had with the Lord. A very personal time with the Lord where the Lord revealed himself to Isaiah in a really profound and personal way. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings, with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke i'm going to just walk us through this now and point out some of the things we're seeing here Sometimes we read something like this, and it's got so many kind of strange references. It's hard to get our bearings on what in the world's going on, and what does this tell us about who God is. The first thing I noted here is that the Lord is sitting upon something, sitting upon a throne. And that use of that word was really clear in that day and time. We don't typically talk about the throne here in the United States, and we don't have anybody sitting on the throne. But when you hear that idea of throne, the idea is that's a, that's a king, that's a person in authority who sits on that throne. Nobody else gets to sit on that throne but he who is in charge. And so in this vision, as Isaiah sees God, he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne as a sovereign ruler. Now we're going to talk in a minute about sovereign ruler over what? Is this just a local you know authority? Is this just the throne of Israel or is this throne sitting over a larger audience? But he is seated on a throne as an ultimate authority, ruler, and judge. What's interesting is um, if you've read the book of Revelation, there's a very similar scene. In Revelation 4, God is doing the same thing for John that he's, he did for Isaiah and he's revealing himself to John in Revelation and and showing him what is and what what is to come. And early on in Revelation, in chapter 4, John has a very similar experience. Listen to the similarities here. This will start in verse 8. John is writing this down. He says, There were four living creatures, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. They're full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, now we're going to see like humans here, 24 elders. The 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now we were, um, some of the the ladies who are teaching in women's ministry on Wednesday nights, I've been meeting with them, and we've been working on just growing in our skill sets around studying and teaching the Word of God, and we've we've kind of set our goal at the very beginning is that our goal in teaching the word is we want a high view of god so we need to have a high view of scripture that helps us get a high view of who god is in too many of our lives god is too small and we are either too big or too small right so a person who's prideful for example has too high a view of themselves but too low a view of god maybe god's just a little bit bigger maybe he's first string and I'm second stringer he's varsity and I'm JV but what we want is a high view of God right and then a level view of humanity and so clearly this is a high view of God I mean we've got these angelic beings that we can't even imagine what they look like worshiping this this one called God who sits on the throne saying some amazing things about him he's worthy Then we have these 24 elders representing, I think, the idea of human leadership. Those who who lead among the churches and shepherd the people. And they come into this scene with crowns of glory on their heads. And at the moment they step into the presence of the one on the throne, what do they do? Oh my gosh, we aren't worthy. Compared, Compared to him, we aren't worthy. We're not just JV. We don't even like, yeah, we don't even have a uniform. Like he is the only one Worthy to be worshiped and adored and lifted up on on high in both scenes we see god as this sovereign ruler he's in authority he's a judge sitting on a throne he's a king sitting on a throne now this doesn't tell us the fullness of who god is because there have been plenty of men and women who sat sat on thrones Right? Some, some were good leaders and some were not. So just the fact that God's got a seat that we call a throne doesn't make him a good God. just means he's in authority. He's seated high on the throne. Which is the next description I noticed here. Not only is he seated high on a throne, he is high and lifted up. Now this Hebrew phrase, just a couple of words here. It's, it's beginning to get us ready for what these seraphim are actually saying. But the idea here is that he's transcendent. He's high and lifted up. They're not talking about theatrics. Somebody pull the cable and lift God up in the air like a Taylor Swift concert. No, the idea high and lifted up is, is speaking of heavenly. Like he doesn't belong here on the earth with us. He's, he's, he's higher than us. He is transcendent, and he is majestic. Above what? Creation. Like, not just you and me, but all of creation. The entire universe. If you think about the whole picture of the entire universe, we can't even find the edges of it. Our best guess is that it's just getting bigger. Whatever the size of the universe is, however high it is, he's higher than that that's the one who sits on the throne he is transcendent and majestic now we're going to pay attention to these seraphim we'll talk about what they're saying first so verse 3 says that these seraphim these angelic beings are calling to one another they're saying this to one another they're proclaiming it to one another they may even be singing it to one another here's what they're saying holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory did you notice that was also in revelation holy 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 now you may be familiar with this there's a reason why it's stated three times and it's not necessarily a trinitarian reference Um, as much as the hebrew culture if they wanted to say something is absolute they would say it three times So he's not kind of holy, sort of holy, sometimes holy. I love it whenever he's holy. The the idea that it's said three times means that this is absolutely true. He is this and he is only this. He is never not this. He is always absolutely holy, holy, holy. Now, the the Hebrew word, uh, kadash, I'm probably not pronouncing that exactly right, Um, the word that we translate into holy means... The, it's the idea of either being perfect or, or set apart different than but in a good way in a transcendent higher than way god is always and absolutely set apart set apart from what all of creation like everything it's not like he's just set apart from us He's set apart from the mountains and the stars and the galaxies and everything that has been made. He truly is set apart, absolutely, from his creation. And that's what these seraphim are saying. If you look at the way God describes himself in the Bible or the way that beings in the Bible, whether humans or angels, describe him, that's one of the most common, that he is holy, holy, holy holy the next thing we notice here then are these beings let's make some sense out of that if we can Um, can we just agree that whatever they are it's like it's not human okay so it's different from you and me these are seraphim which means a fiery being okay so these are like angelic heavenly beings don't expect to find one of these when you go hunting in the woods Even these beings are are described in a way where they seem to be set apart from creation. Not in the way God is, but these aren't the kind of things that you find when you're hiking in the mountains or crossing the desert or swimming in the ocean. You have these fiery, angelic beings, and and they're doing something with their wings. They're covering their faces with two. Okay, This is a sign of humility and inequality. While these angelic beings may be set apart from humans compared to the one on the throne, there is no equality. It's not God's little brother, his cousins, or distant relatives. And These are angelic beings. They're, they're more than you and me, but they are not equal with God. And they are showing us that by just covering their faces in humility and inequality with the one who sits on the throne. And with two, they cover their feet. This is a symbol of service. We read about this in the New Testament. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, the gospel. Here these angelic beings are in service to God. They're serving God, and they're covering their feet even in humility. They're humble servants to God, and with two, they are flying. Uh, I think this is, and this is just after a lot of study, this is the idea of trying to call attention to something. They're flying around, trying to get creation to take notice of something amazing kind of hovering around they're above the throne they're they're calling attention to the one who is on the throne as they're flying around desiring to bring glory to the one who sits on the throne so i wrote this down just want to read it this way these creatures as interesting as they are they are obviously not the main characters in this scene these creatures who are themselves pretty awe-inspiring and fearsome, right? Like, if in just a minute one shows up over my head, I've lost you as an audience. You're no longer listening to me. You're going to be like, whoa. So they're, they're pretty amazing. However, it seems like they exist to glorify and to serve God and to highlight His worthiness of worship. They're not in this scene to call attention to themselves. And everything that Isaiah is describing here seems to indicate that they don't want to be considered the main characters in the scene. And that their desire is to call attention to God Himself. Something about God who sits on this throne is so good that the beings closest to Him want the whole earth to take notice. That's what I'm seeing here. Whether I'm in Revelation 4 Isaiah 6, these beings that are, that are the closest, it seems to be, to God's presence are inviting creation to take notice of this one who sits on the throne. The next thing that I noticed as I was reading this passage this week is the train of his robe fills the temple. And then at the end, if you notice, the smoke fills the temple. So this, this one who sits on the throne, he fills the temple. And that's a big deal, especially for a Hebrew audience. Now, we'll, we'll kind of talk about the, the, the specifics of smoke in just a minute. Um, but the idea for the Hebrews was that um, when they, they left Egypt, okay, so they followed God's presence in a very specific way. And God's going to reveal himself very similar to what Isaiah is seeing here. But the point was not that God gave them a map and said, go this way. God gave them an invitation and said, follow me. He led them through the wilderness, which was the good news when they get to the Red Sea and turn around and look and go, oh my God, there's Pharaoh and his army. It's a good thing that God was there and they didn't have to like pick up the phone and call him. Hey, we're following your map and we got trapped because God's presence was there. He had gone before them. Right? So he provided all that they need from the miracle of the Red Sea to manna from heaven to water from a rock. It's God's presence. Like, God, again, was not giving them a map and sending them out on their way. God said, come follow me. And he led them with his presence. Along the way, they established the tabernacle. Okay, this was the temporary temple. It's like a big tent. But in it was the idea of this can be the place where we can get near to God in his presence. Later, this will become the temple, and you get the Holy of Holies, and you have a curtain that kind of shields God's presence. And as God is presenting himself here, he's filling up the temple. But not only that, like, he's filling up the universe with his presence. You can't measure, you can't find the hems of, of the train of his robe. You can't tell where God begins and where he ends. He is. Filling this place up. It says, the whole house was filled with smoke. So if you go back into the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 13, this is the beginning of their journey um, out of Egypt. Verse 21 says, "The Lord went before them by day, in a pillar of cloud, by or two. Lead them along the way, and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel day and night. And God is leading with his presence. In the day, it was like this cloud of smoke, and at night, it was like a fire. Exodus 19, this is where we get to Mount Sinai, and Moses is gonna get the Ten Commandments now. Same journey, they've made it to Mount Sinai. Verse 18 says, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord has descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain listen to this trembled greatly when we hear that happening we'll talk about it in a minute here even in this scene there's a shaking and a trembling with the presence of God and the idea of smoke if you've ever been in a room full of smoke is that smoke fills every crevice okay so it's not like just a poof and it's gone it's like no this the presence of God is filling everything here God fills the temple with his presence. So, this will be important when we get to the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when he sends his spirit to fill his believers. Remember what happened to the building they were in? Shook. 1 Kings chapter 8, just read a couple verses here. It's talking about the priests coming out of the holy place that I just described says this, that when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. It's like when God shows up, he doesn't need priests ministering in his place. His presence is enough. Like, if you come to church because you think you need to hear what I have to say, I'm flattered but, but I got nothing to help you. I'm, I'm a human like you. I walk in with the same struggles and brokenness and temptations and weakness and I'm not up here because I'm like a mediator between you and God and I've got the, the secret phone. I'm just up here operating as one of you in a specific gifting to teach the word, serving as an elder, and under shepherd in the church. But at the end of the day, you need the one who can fill this place like smoke. You need the one who can fill your life that way with His presence. As we go back to what these seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, it's not just the temple that's full of His glory, it's not just this room that's full of His glory, the whole earth is full of His glory. This is putting God in His throne above all creation. He is absolutely glorious you look at his creation you'll see beautiful things but those are just hints of the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the one who created these things I love to go out into nature and see amazing things backwoods Montana mountains so big I can't fathom at night, the stars are so bright and galaxies are visible that I just can't fathom how far away they are. I see all this majestic, beautiful creation and what God is, what God is revealing in this passage that he's actually set apart. For, he's above that. He's actually more than that. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So when you see glory on the earth, it's a reflection of his glory. You with me? You will see glorious things. Take note, well, that's glorious. Sunrise, sunset, Grand Canyon, mountain, sky, whatever. You're going to see glorious things. Newborn baby. And all those little glorious things are just micro versions of the actual main king who is glorious. The whole earth is full of his glory. Romans 1 talks about this. Um, Paul's writing in uh, Romans to a church, so Christians in Rome, and he starts off by talking about these people um, who have suppressed the truth of God. Okay, people are suppressing the truth. He talks about how these these people are without excuse, and in verse uh, 20, he says this, here's why they are without excuse, for the invisible attributes of God namely his eternal power and his divine nature what he can do and who he is so these invisible attributes of god have been clearly perceived or seen or revealed ever since when the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse you will see the glory you will see how amazing god is by just looking at what he made And that reminds us that he is what? Higher than. He is transcendent. He is above. Psalms chapter 19, verse 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then I like this next verse, though it's a little confusing. Verse 2 says, And day pours out speech, and night reveals knowledge. It's like this idea that if I'll pay attention during the daylight, it's going to just keep revealing the invisible attributes of God to me. It's just going to keep pouring those things out. And then if I'll pay attention at nighttime, same thing keeps happening. The knowledge of who God is just keeps coming. All I have to do is step out into creation day or night and pay attention, and I will see his glory. The last thing here in these few verses is not only is he majestic and transcendent and holy and glorious and sovereign, but he is also all-powerful. That's why the thresholds are shaking. I just want that to set in for just a minute. If we consider all the bad news of the world today, it doesn't matter that you believe in God unless God can do something about it. He's not your service dog, He's not just meant to be there to to help you be comfortable when you're uncomfortable. He is a God who moves and acts and works and does something. You with me? He isn't meant to just be a good luck charm you hang on your wall or put on your table or tattoo on your arm. Those can be good reminders of who He is, but He is a God who acts and lives and breathes and works. This is how the psalmist compares God to all the false gods. They've got ears but can't hear. They've got eyes but can't see. They've got mouths but can't speak. God can do all those things, and He does those things with power. He is all powerful. That's why the the, the building in Acts 2 shakes. That's why the mountain in Exodus 19 shakes. That's why, in the scene, the foundations of the thresholds shook. At what? the voice of him who called. He doesn't even have to walk across the room to shake the room. There is a proper amount of fear that is rooted in awe and wonder that can and should be ascribed to God. Listen. If God can do something about what's going on in Israel right now And if God can do something about the thing going on in your life right now, you need him to be all-powerful right We need God to be able to do something about the brokenness in the world God isn't revealing him this this way to back you into a corner So you'll tuck your tail and run and hide from him That's what adam and eve did in genesis 3 and what did this all-powerful god do? Hey, come back out of hiding Come near to me But make no mistake, he is powerful. His voice shakes the foundation of the universe. There's a a scene in uh, Chronicles of Narnia. It's a series by C.S. Lewis, some of you are familiar with. My favorite scene, probably my second favorite scene, is the conversation, so it's about these kids who step through a wardrobe into this uh, fantasy land, But in this, C.S. Lewis uh, writes in a way where he's illustrating principles and truths in the kingdom through the story that unfolds. If you've never read it or never read it that way, I just encourage you to go back, watch the movies or read the books. But there's a scene where uh, the the kids, some of the kids make it to where the beavers are. And Lucy is having the conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Now you're with me. This is a fantasy land because beavers don't talk. Now, in this fantasy land, um, they're trying to figure out who this Aslan is um that the the, the beavers are talking about that they're like who is this lucy's like who is this aslan what's he like i just have a little bit of the script of the conversation i want you to listen because this is c.s lewis trying to describe a god who is all powerful who when he speaks the thresholds shake so here's the conversation between lucy and two beavers she asks, this is is he a man aslan a man said mr beaver sternly certainly not i tell you he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea don't you know who is the king of the beasts aslan is a lion the lion the great lion and then susan responds "Ooh, i thought he was a man is he quite safe I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. (laughs) Then Mrs. Beaver speaks up. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or else just silly. Then Lucy asks, then is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. When you see God revealing himself this way and something inside of you begins to tremble a little bit in awe and fear, that's good and right and appropriate because he is set apart. He is all-powerful. His ways are higher. Now, what's going to happen is here, uh, we're going to begin to move in towards, into the gospel even further. And I want to make, just make this clear real, as we go through this. So many times we hear the gospel and we think, well, that's evangelism. That's where I tell somebody about Jesus dying on the cross, and then I invite them to believe in Him or make Him their Savior and Lord. Now, evangelism is important, but when we talk about the gospel, it starts with who God is. It doesn't even start with your need. Your need's coming, but it starts with who God is. If there's a God who's going to save you and save me, we need to know who He is. Before I bring my problems, my troubles, my concerns, my grief to this being called God, I need to know, can he do anything about it? And then the second question I need to know is, will he? (laughs) Are you with me? Can he first, and then will he? And so what's going to flow out of this now is more of the gospel verse 5 of isaiah 6 we see isaiah's response isaiah said woe is me that's an appropriate amount of fear woe is me for i am lost some translations will say undone i am lost i am undone for why because i am a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah first sees himself in light of who God is. The reference of unclean lips is a reference to the uncleanliness of of the innermost being of Isaiah. His soul is unclean. He doesn't just need to clean up his language. That's not what he's saying. He's like, i got to quit cussing. No, he's like, no, everything that flows out of my heart and becomes an overflow of what I speak is unclean in light of this majestic, set-apart, holy, all-powerful being, I want to recognize that I am unclean. I'm undone. Not only that, when I think about the other people in Israel and I look around, I live among a people who are unclean. We're all unclean. We talked about this a little bit last week, like the story of the loving father and the prodigal son and the obedient son, and we read that story and go, yeah, I know guys like that. So glad God's kind because He's going to let them back into church one day. You're, you're the prodigal son. I'm the prodigal son. That's who we are in that story. You are not the obedient son who stays home. Some of you are like, hmm. <laughs> Isaiah has already written five chapters of prophecy. And he's in this moment. He's a. He's a man among men. He's a leader in Israel. He's a prophet for for goodness sake. And he is undone. In this moment, he recognizes, I am the prodigal son, and I live among prodigal sons. We are all unclean. Why? For my eyes have seen the king. For my eyes have seen the king. The presence of God brings this about in Him and it brings it about in you. You're you're not going to turn to God in obedience or repentance or ask for forgiveness simply because I come to you and point out where you're flawed. You need somebody higher than me to do that. Because compared to me, you're pretty good. Compared to you, I'm pretty good. But compared to a holy God who has set apart, we are unclean. We'll come back to that next week. But I want you to see that. It was the majesty of the king that revealed this to Isaiah. He probably walked into this thinking he is all right. Pretty good. I'm already dealing with God. We're having conversations. He's giving me things to write. Man, I'm but in this moment, he is completely undone. But then I want to look at God's response in verse 6 and 7. Again, we won't spend a lot of time here because we're going to do it later in the series. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having his hand, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. That's the good news of the gospel. I'm not going to point it all out, but I love how the, how the seraphim comes to Isaiah, reflecting what God actually comes to you. God comes looking for us. He's the shepherd who leaves the 99 to come find a lost sheep. God moves towards Isaiah in the midst of Isaiah's undoneness. It would be foolish for Isaiah to take another step forward, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Foolish. So he stays there and God comes to him. God bridges the gap. God does the work symbolically what we see here is this coal touches his lips it's not his lips that need to be cleaned what is his language this is representing God cleansing his heart Jesus is like hey you want to know what's in the heart just listen to the words out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks this is representing God cleansing Isaiah's heart this seraphim says this behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I want to land, and we've got time to do this, just in a very practical passage in the New Testament that I think highlights some of these truths for us. Um, it's in 1 John chapter 1. I'm just going to read a couple verses here as we wrap up. This is John the disciple. This is John the one who wrote down Revelation. And this is one of his letters. It's in 1 John. And he's describing this in a very practical way to us. In verse five, he says this, this is the message we have heard from him, from who's him? From God, and we proclaim it to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Such a simple phrase, but he's describing a transcendent God. In the same way darkness is opposite from light, God is the opposite of us. He's that set apart from us. In him there is no darkness at all. Now he makes it practical to Christians, to the church. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So you may have a t-shirt, you may have a tattoo, you may show up every Sunday talking about how Jesus is your homeboy, and y'all had a fantastic quiet time this week, and he was just whispering to you, and you're whispering to him, all these sorts of things. But if you're saying those things, while actually living in darkness, John's going to be like, uh-uh, you're not walking with Jesus. You may be walking with something, but you aren't walking with him. He is like light in darkness. And when he's walking with you, when he's in your life, there is no room for darkness. Look at what he says in verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, look at what else happens. We actually have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son cleanses us from all sin. It's beautiful. To know the King and to walk with the King, to walk in the forgiveness that Isaiah was experiencing as a result of the Gospel is a beautiful thing. And as I walk with God, as I walk in the light, I also walk with whoever else is in the light. And I have fellowship with them, a sweet fellowship. The church is not a, a club you join. It's not an HOA where you pay dues. This is a place where the children of God walk together. And because of what he's done in our lives through the gospel, we walk in sweet fellowship. That's that koinonia word, with one another. And then look at what he says here, and I feel like this is, had Isaiah turned his back or been like, nah, I'm good, this is what I think John would be saying. If we, ha- if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I don't think it would have been possible but if in that moment he'd have been like, nah, I'm good, you keep that coal. Now, I know some guys back in, back in Jerusalem, they really need, they need it more than me. John's like, hey, if you say you have no sin, you're actually deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. But here's the good news. Here's what happened for Isaiah, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There again is the good news of the gospel. But if we say we have not sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So even in this passage, we can see God's holiness contrasted with our darkness, and how our confession leads us what to the cleansing of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, and fellowship with one another. And I want to I want to land here today, and then we'll come back next week and, and get to question two. I want to ask questions like we normally do, but the first question I want to ask before I even get to the questions that are coming up here is like, Hey, do you do you know this king? if if you've claimed to be a christian and the god you believe in is less than this god then you've believed in a false god i'm not trying to hurt your feelings i'm not trying to create doubt for you i'm just being honest with you this is the king who sent his son to die on the cross for you and for me one who is all-powerful and who can do something isn't that good news if you believed in a God who's anything less than this, you believed in a false God. But you may be here today, and you may have never believed in God, and you may be, consider yourself atheist or agnostic or just confused you don't know, and I'm glad you're here. I really am. I don't, I don't need you to walk in the door having it all together to want to be with you. I'm, I'm glad you're here. And this same. listen, this same king of kings sitting on the throne is also a good father. And he's giving you an invitation to come to him today. I don't know, man, that sounds scary. Okay, bring your fear to him and find out what kind of God he is. Bring your fear into his presence today and just see what happens. Because he's not only powerful from the Chronicles of Narnia, he's also good. He's a king, I tell you. So I want to lay that out before you. If that's you, um, when I get done asking questions and praying, prayer partners are at the front. They're here for you. Um, our elders will be around as well if you need somebody to answer questions or give you some more direction. Let me ask these questions for us to reflect on, and then I'll pray. How does this vision of God's holiness in Isaiah 6, like 1 through 4, I think it says 1 through 3, but 1 through 4, how does this impact your understanding of who God is? Did He just get bigger in your heart today? Bigger in your mind today? I hope so. However big your God was walking in, He may have been like, huge, I hope He's bigger now. How did it impact your understanding of who He is? I want you to now take a moment to reflect on your own sinfulness in light of God's perfect holiness. How does acknowledging your sin deepen your gratitude for the good news of Christ's atoning sacrifice? This could be a sin you've never confessed to God. You're like, I don't know, I'm gonna find out if he's gonna forgive me for this one. Or it could be part of your story, something you've brought to God a thousand times, but you just wanna take some inventory today of his goodness. Just think about your own sinfulness, your own rebellion towards God. How How does acknowledging that sin before a holy God deepen your gratitude? to the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Whatever your gratitude was coming in, I hope it's deeper. I hope it's wider, bigger. Third question is this, have you experienced the cleansing and forgiving power of the gospel in your life? If not, I hope you'll do it today. I hope you will come and find out how good God is today. But if you have, are there still areas in your life that you need to surrender to God to experience His transformative grace? Maybe a few things you're kind of white knuckling, you're holding on to. You're like, "No, nah, I want to get this one right. You can fix everything else, God, but this is my project. I'm too embarrassed about this one. Let me, let me, let me do this one. I'll let you know when I get it right." Is there anything like that that you need to surrender to Him today? So you know what? Actually, <laughs> I need you to fix this too. I need you to address this too. And then the last question is this. Um, isaiahs he experiences radical transformation in this passage. Radical transformation. Matter of fact, if we keep reading, it's, it's amazing what God does in Isaiah's life after this. So I want you to take a moment, I want you to reflect on the transformative power of the gospel in your life. And think about this. In what ways has the gospel changed you? Maybe something from today. Maybe something from when you were eight years old. How, in what ways has the gospel changed you? And then how does your life reflect the righteousness and the holiness of God given to you through faith in Jesus? So when Jesus forgives you, he exchanges that for something, his righteousness. He doesn't just he doesn't take the draw erase board and just wipe it clean and then hand you a marker and go, okay, now don't mess it up again. He actually gives you his righteousness in exchange and so as you think about that, how does, this, how does your life reflect this? The righteousness and the holiness of God that's given to you as a gift through your faith in Jesus. I'm gonna pray for us now and then ask the worship team to come back out and lead us as we respond. Let's pray. Father, holy God, you are truly high and lifted up. God your presence fills it fills temples it fills churches it fills your people and it fills the universe there's nowhere we can go and not be in your presence you're sovereign you're sovereign not just over our lives but over the entire universe Father you are holy there is none like you not even the angelic beings that are surrounding your throne right now while we pray in this building. Not even these beings are like you. There are, there's none like you. And so, Father, I want to thank you for being this amazing, transcendent and majestic, and also for being kind and good. You don't just undo us like Isaiah and then leave us there in our desperation when you undo us you come to us and meet our needs Father today I'm praying that that would happen in this room in the lives of these people who are sitting here right now in the same way the seraphim flew to Isaiah that your Holy Spirit would move and move in us cleanse us O God restore us Heal us where we are wounded. Lord, we pray all this in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus.